Good morning. Nothing like a good ice storm to get us all cozy, right? Although you all have a lot of space between you, so I don't know what that's about. We've all been sick, so I understand. So before I start my sermon today, I figured I would talk about the elephant in the room, which is this guy right here. I um, am extremely close to my due date, so I'm not sure any of you have ever heard a woman this pregnant preach before. And I can tell you I've never spoken 30 minutes straight with a baby this big in my belly affecting my airways <laughs> as much before. So it's definitely an experiment for all of us. We will see what happens. If something crazy does happen, and I'm like looking, it's going to be you guys. But as like, <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody, you know, I have a contingency plan. I'm expecting some volunteers from the front row, which is only you three, to be uh, temporary midwives if I need it. So uh, volunteers, tributes, oh, perfect. Oh, oh, thought he was coming up here to help. You guys okay with that? <laughs> Good, mostly I'm just making sure you're all still awake because it is a little rough morning, <laughs> starting with the ice. But all kidding aside, there's something exhilarating about trying something for the first time. I definitely qualify this as a first. Will I give birth today? Who knows? Will I freak some people out? Only time will tell. <laughs> And uh, it's a wild card, and I love wild cards. So with all that fresh on your mind right now, sorry about that, I think the elephant in the room is officially um, addressed, and we can just dive into what God has for us today. To some degree, I think we all have New Year's resolutions. Whether we've actually verbalized them out loud to a friend, written them down in a secret diary, or they remain somewhere in our subconscious, I think we all have things we, could, we wish we could change about our lives. But I want to ask you, what do most of your resolutions revolve around? Are they about getting strong and healthy, maybe more attractive, more intelligent? I have a lofty goal, well, for me, of reading 24 books this year. And that's on top of my goal to read through the Bible in 2020. At the core, I think these goals can be a good thing. I want to read through the Bible to understand God more. I want to be more disciplined in my search for wisdom to listen to his voice. And I want to read more books because I want to grow intellectually, to be a better human and contribute to the world by learning about other people's experiences through their biographies, reading books about becoming a good leader and heeding advice from texts on business and finances. But at the heart of all these sweet and innocent aspirations, am I really just focused on myself? Am I wanting to read the Bible more because my heart truly desires more of God? Or is it to feel better about myself as a Christian? To feel like I've fulfilled my duty, to feel important and spiritually mature? Am I wanting to read all these books to help others live more God-inspired lives and glorifying God through my talents that were positively affected by this type of committed training? Or am I wanting to fill my head with information that makes me feel more secure in my own understanding? Are these goals about me or are these goals fueled by the commandments to love the Lord my God, to love my neighbor as myself? What is the foundation, the motivation behind these desires? If I'm being vulnerable here, I don't always know that answer. Today my motivations might seem pure and I might truly only be reading scripture because I hunger after him. But tomorrow it could be because I feel guilt and obligation to follow through. Maybe you guys walk a similar line struggling to know the heart behind your goal or resolution. 
Let me ask you a question. Do any of your goals directly relate to the people around you, the world around you? Have any of you written down, maybe on goal number five or goal number nine, to be more relationally intentional? Maybe you wrote down to strengthen your friendships, to find accountability, to be a mentor, to write letters of encouragement more often, to be a better parent, a more grace-filled spouse. Did any of you commit to becoming more involved in this church, in this corporate body, to offer your talents, to serve, to trust in relationships around you, to be pushed by your brothers and sisters in Christ? What would happen if our list became a little less and self-inflated and a little more selfless and self-sacrificing? What if our list became others-focused and in turn our communities were built up? Today, we are reading out of the, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. At that time, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. He was in prison in Rome writing to the church in Ephesus. His letter focused on what it meant to be a Christian in faith and in practice. And it was meant to encourage his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as it does with us today, to live a life worthy of the calling we have. Paul knew that there would be quarrels and disagreements in this body of Christ, particularly when it came to the relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. He wanted to remind us of how important it is that we hold firm to the oneness we have in Christ. That our desires should be for peace and growth and maturity, love, the characteristics that would ultimately set us apart from the rest of the world. Paul's hope through this letter was to encourage the Ephesian church to be unified in spirit so that they might benefit both personally and corporately. Ultimately, to spread the gospel throughout their communities locally and around the world. So today we're reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made himself captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were some, that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saint, saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful screaming. But speaking truth and love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. As I started writing this sermon, a bunch of songs just about togetherness naturally popped into my head. So I ran with it and made a theme song for each point. 
If you guys, like me, grew up in the high school musical age, I know some of you guys, <laughs> all right, I, some of you were parents of the high school musical age, so that would be rough too. But if you did, you would know the song, We're All In This Together. Now, there was a ton of clapping and dancing, so my monotone, just spoken version of it is not gonna be nearly as exciting. But the words went something like this, everyone is special in their own way. We make each other strong. We make each other strong. That's a little echo and a little creepy. <laughs> we're not the same. We're different in a good way. Together's where we belong. We're all in this together. Once we know that we are, we're all stars and we see that. We're all in this together. And it shows when we stand hand in hand. Make our dreams come true. <laughs> I wanted you guys to join, but you didn't, so. There we go. I think Zac Efron and Troy Bolton was onto something here. In his case, his friends, these unique individuals, made up the student body. And together they will stand hand in hand, making their dreams come true. In our case, we make up the body of Christ. And we need each other's specialness to make us strong, to follow through with the dreams and purposes God has given each of us individually and collectively. So point number one is we are one body. We need each other's gifts, perspectives, and wisdom. I was born with a tarsal coalition, which is just a fancy way to say that I had an extra fused bone in my foot that eventually caused me a tremendous amount of pain growing up. You know when you're little and you just think everything you experience is normal? I remember being super young and constantly burping up tons of acid and thinking, well, I guess everyone does this. Okay, that was a little TMI, I admit. But there's also the times where you, you deduce that the only logical answer to there being no cars in the driveway, no way to get in your house after coming home from school is that your whole family was raptured and you're the one left behind. When you're a kid, you think everything you experience is totally normal or logical. And having a tarsal coalition was a little like that. I thought it was normal to walk around with pain 24-7, to compensate with my other leg, to sprain my ankles regularly. It wasn't until I was about eight that my parents and I figured out what was wrong. But unfortunately, even with a diagnosis, it was something that would continue to affect me for the rest of my life. My first surgery was when I was 13, but we had tried everything before that. We had tried boots and resting, sitting out of sports, ibuprofen, eventually cortisone shots. I continued to sprain my ankles often because my, both of my feet were so weak. I was an active kid and I wasn't gonna let pain stop me from doing what I loved. But the thing is, when there is a problem in one part of your body, your whole body feels it, doesn't it? Still in the elementary years, my knees started to ache in pain. Walking around the mall became the biggest chore ever and I remember desperately trying to keep up with my grandma. Holding back tears of pain so that no one could see the agony I was in. You see, it was just my left ankle that had the problem, but it was as if that ankle affected the rest of my body. I remember having daydreams about amputating my foot in hopes of relieving some pain. Fast forward to university and I had one of the worst injuries I've ever had, coming down from a rebound from a girl that was six feet tall. I went up for the rebound, actually got the basketball in my hands, came down and landed right on her foot. My ankle ripped backwards. I fell to the ground yelling nonsense. I remember looking at my leg and feeling super dizzy. It looked just like a snake. Did it always look like that? My second thought after the PT and ref and my coach came over was, why did it have to be no shave November? 
This is so embarrassing. They're all going to see how hairy my legs are. The injury was bad, to say the least. Spiral fracture of the tibia, multiple, multiple ligament tears, dislocation. I needed surgery stat. I needed screws and plates. It was three months of non-weight bearing, six months of casts, over a year of PT, and everything the other surgery had just accomplished, even if it wasn't much, felt like it just got washed down the toilet. A little after Justin and I were married, he reminds me, because I seem to have a little issue with repressing pain and bad memories, he reminds me that I could barely walk anywhere. I was in so much constant pain, even two years after that injury, The doctors gave me one option. Either you choose to live with this, and the rest of your body continues to be negatively affected as you compensate and you create more pain in your knees, your hips, your back, or you suddenly become a 21-year-old with the mobility of a 65-year-old and you receive another ankle surgery of a partial fusion. The choices came down to either being continuing to be involved in aggressive contact sports that would aggravate that ankle and hardly allow me to function in everyday life, or have the fusion, say goodbye to a lot of those fun sports, but a possible hello to a life with easier walking and less overall pain. The choice at this point was a no-brainer. Even though I lost and mourned the loss of mobility, I would take the surgery. I would become a 21-year-old with the mobility barriers of a 65-year-old. It was worth it. When I look back at the stories of my life, these snapshots of of pain or joy or hope, I tend to see object lessons everywhere, God showing me glimpses of himself in the rearview mirror of my life. I could preach multiple sermons on this story, concepts of pain and perseverance, loneliness, grief, disappointment, God's timing and his faithfulness. But this story popped into my head for this sermon for this particular reason. If one part of the body suffers... We all suffer. If one part of the body is in pain, we are all in pain. If one part of the body is functioning less than 100%, less than 50%, less than 10%, we all feel it. So why do we act like we aren't affected by our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or better yet, why, why do we live like we don't affect our brothers and sisters? I could have pretended all day long that this, this ankle issue, my lifelong struggle of pain, had no influence on the rest of my body, but that would have been foolish. Because if I hadn't made drastic decisions about my future and my ankle, the rest of my body would be hurting indefinitely. If we continue to ignore our issues, our shortcomings, our sins, and we don't humbly allow our brothers and sisters to help us through them, are we not causing the whole body to suffer. We need each other. We need each other healthy. How much good would it do the entire world if we were able to trust each other in accountability? If we were able to work together for change and not in opposition for our own personal goals? With Christ as the head, the whole body has the potential to flourish in health. But if we aren't careful and we ignore those suffering parts, how much overcompensating will some people do? And how much dying will other parts do? Because we are one body. We need each other's gifts, perspectives, and wisdom. I might be the defective left ankle, and you might be the healthy right knee. But you're going to feel my unhealth. You're going to experience my pain in one way or another. 
I need your perspective to carry on. I need your wisdom to find full health. I need your talents to compensate for the areas I'm weak in. The author of the sermon series, Beyond the 52, Church Outside of Sunday Morning, says, the believer has to understand that every part of the body is important and valuable. We rely on one another. In the midst of our imperfections, God is glorified. It is when we choose to value one role, opinion, or talent above the others that the whole body becomes sick, disfigured, and broken. If we are one body, we need to rely on one another in healthy codependence. And this happens by starting to recognize what each person brings to the table, by starting to challenge each other more deeply. But neither of these things can happen if we don't get together regularly or choose to experience the highs and lows of life together outside of church on Sunday morning. Consistency and trust in relationships with our brothers and sisters does not get achieved from a quick handshake on Sunday. Which brings us to point number two, we were created for relationships. We need each other for consistency and accountability. I really hope you guys have seen Barney. This entire analogy is gonna flop. It's really hard to know what, what Americans and Canadians have in common, and then the things that weirdly affected one of us more than the other. So do you guys know the 90s show, Barney, the kids show? Okay, how many of you? I'm just curious, raise your hand. Okay, good, okay, that feels amazing. So you'll probably be creeped out by this next part, and maybe you already know what's coming, because I said I have a theme song for every point. This one is the, you know, you can pull it out of the deep cabinet in your memory. The more we get together. <laughs> I was going to try to sing the whole thing in a creepy voice, but I don't think I can. Together, together, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah, I'm so good. So once you're over that trauma of hearing my voice sing that, you might be thinking, okay, maybe, maybe if you're a kid, this song is true. The more we get together, the grumpier we'll be, the angrier we'll be. Maybe the best adjective to sum this up is the holier we'll be. Because let's be, for, let's be real, even for Henry, he could love a kid tomorrow and try to, today, and try to bite him tomorrow. He could say A.V. a million times in a cute way all day because he loves her. And forget about that love tomorrow and try to beat her to a ball that he wants because it's just not realistic that our emotions, when we're with each other, are always going to be defined as happier. Am I right? Do I hear an amen? Thanks, Pastor Eric, you always got that. <laughs> but we were created for relationships. This doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. In the very beginning, even before the fall, God says of Adam, it's not good for him to be alone. In the Trinity, we see the perfect loving relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And honestly, now thinking about it, the Trinity might be the only relationship that's able to sing, the more we get together, the happier we'll be, and mean it. Because we weren't meant to be alone, it doesn't mean it's not messy. And downright painful to be in community sometimes. Brett McCracken says, the reality of God's family is that people have different backgrounds, personalities, and opinions. They will clash, it'll be messy. It's a huge challenge committing to a family like this, but it is not optional. Adopted sons and daughters can't just throw in the towel and retreat to their just-like-me friend groups and homogenous cliques. 
we must lean into the awkward conglomeration of people who comprise the church. And it's not just the messiness of personality differences. It's the actual hurt that can come from accountability. The process of us being together and becoming holier, not just happier. The author of this sermon series, Beyond the 52, says, It is much easier to point out what is wrong with someone else instead of looking in the mirror. The church allows us to do both. It's also important that the individual Christian have accountability so that when we refuse to look in the mirror, our family in Christ can provide wisdom and guidance. So where do we find this consistency love and accountability. I'm glad you asked. There are a few things that excite me more than when you're writing a sermon and themes are fitting even more perfectly than you originally intended them to. And with the, the launch of our groups coming soon, we knew that the, the theme of community in this sermon series would fit really well. But today, I realized that there's so much more that fits. It's not just launching our groups that I'm excited about within this concept of becoming mature and not tossed by the waves and finding the accountability of our spiritual brothers and sisters. It's the launch of one specific group that I am particularly pumped about. Our next steps group is the exact place you want to be. If you are new to our church or new to faith, or maybe you just feel like there's gaps in learning throughout your walk with Christ. We have taken the system of class 101, 201, 301, and 401 and have adapted them into a, a structure that's a little easier to swallow. Instead of a three or four hour class of sitting and learning as much as you can and not interacting with those around you as much, we've decided to put them into the group system so we can talk about these deep and important topics while building community with one another. We have the goal of interweaving what the participants are learning with that of building friendship and support and connection and accountability. I highly, highly recommend this group, but luckily for all of us, there are so many options out there. For whatever you are needing in this season, we have finance groups, we have a marriage group, a young adult group, a high school group, curriculums focused on certain areas of the Bible. We have women's groups, celebrate recovery groups, and more. I know it's hard to hear these words sometimes, but there really is no excuse. Diverse groups are offered at diverse times. It's up to you to decide to grow. It's up to you to change your resolutions list, to become more others-focused. It's up to you to start doing your job in building up this church. It's up to you to take the challenge to jump into growth by community, so what's holding you back? We're all super busy. That's the number one excuse I hear out of my own mouth and out of everyone else's. But even if we're struggling in one way or another, aren't both of those things two more reasons why we need community? Isn't being stressed, overwhelmed, busy, frustrated, anxious, sick, hurting, just more reasons why we need each other? that going through life alone actually amplifies feelings of isolation. Going through life alone can intensify temptations and feelings of hopelessness. I'm not your Holy Spirit, and I'm not pretending to be. Go home and pray about it. If this season is too, truly too busy for you, think about things that really do have to go. And if it happens to be groups, I'm okay with that. But if it happens to be something else, please be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit's leading that you do something about that revelation. Number three, we are better together. 
We need each other to remember our higher callings. Justin and I have always loved the song Better Together by Jack Johnson. It's a love song. Came out right around when we were getting married. The lyrics can pretty much be summed up in this portion of the song. Love is the answer, at least for most of the questions in my heart. Like, why are we here? Where do we go? And how come it's so hard? It's not always easy, and sometimes life can be deceiving, but I'll tell you one thing. It's always better when we're together. You see, sometimes life can be hard and confusing. It's super easy to get bogged down by little things, let alone the big, hard life events that come our way. But the truth is, we are better together. We are better because we can remind each other of the higher calling God has for each of our lives when the windshields of our lives become clouded with grief or icy with bitterness or dusty from lack of use and inaction. We can act as windshield wiper fluid for one another, allowing each of us the consistency to see the horizon in front of us. It's breathtaking views, the plans God has for us that seem so far off, but sometimes are right around the next hill. It's not always easy, and sometimes life can be deceiving, but I'll tell you one thing, it's so much better when we're together. When we're fighting the good fight alongside one another, when we're keeping each other up late at night on a long drive, when we're crying alongside each other when we've lost a battle or a loved one or a relationship, when we're rejoicing with one another in every victory, every positive outcome, every success and salvation story. Tim Stafford says, to be in Christ, we cannot stand off distant from the body. We absolutely must serve other Christians, parts of his body, in continuous relationship. A body part detached from other body parts is clearly useless and soon dead. It cannot experience Christ, the head of the body. We offer perilous advice when we urge people to find Christ anywhere but a local congregation. Can you imagine if Paul arriving in a city, finding the local congregation not to his taste and simply staying away? For Paul, a Christian without his church is as unthinkable as a human being with no relatives. People need people. God's people need God's people in order to know God. Life in Christ is a corporate affair. All God's promises were made to God's people, plural. All the New Testament epistles address Christians in churches. The Bible simply does not know the existence of an isolated, individual isolated Christian. Let's hear Paul's words again from that first part of the chapter. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you who are called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul desperately wants us to see that the way we change the world for Jesus, the way we change our own lives and each other's lives, is by seeing our oneness and by connecting our oneness to him. By keeping peace with one another and growing together, our highest calling is to love the Lord our God and to love people. And we do this by being better together, learning to trust one another and push one another to be the best we can be for his glory. We are one body. We were created for relationships and we are better together. 
My challenge for you today is, what can you take off your New Year's resolution list in order to put something on that eternally matters? Because as much as our individual health and success and intellect matters, the gospel matters more. What needs to go on your list that allows you to focus more on your relationships with the people around you? It's going to be different for all of us. For example, for me, it's more important for me to add things to my list. Not in a way to busy myself, but in a way to challenge myself in the area of discipline. Because if I'm asking you to look internally, I want you to know that I've done the same. And what I find internally is a lack of discipline and follow through. It's important for me to set lofty goals with tangible ways to get there because I have historically failed on my New Year's resolutions every year. And maybe you don't struggle with discipline. Maybe for you, you need to take things off your list because life ends up being one big to-do list and pride can easily just sweep you off your feet as you accomplish and succeed in the areas that make you feel most secure about yourself. Maybe you need to take goals off your list and rest in Jesus. Maybe you just need to reprioritize your list today. Maybe over time your priorities have gotten so out of whack and you just need a moment to sit and think through the decisions you've made and dream about different future possible outcomes. Maybe you just need to do a little adjusting. Whatever your intangible or tangible resolution lists look like, know this, that God has called you to something so much bigger than yourself. He's called you into abundant living, but living cannot be abundant and full without each other. Many hands make light work. We can only do so much on our own. So today, may the same hands that write your list of goals be the same hands that open up toward heaven to receive the blessings God wants to give us through one another. May the same hands that write your list of goals be willing to grasp your neighbor's hands and say, we're all in this together. The more we get together, the better we are together. Let's do this.